and welcome back to another episode of Tell Me About It, where we get all of our rejections, the mistakes, heartbreaks, and insecurities out in the open and hopefully make each other feel less alone in the process. I'm Jade Iovine, and we have a really great episode for you guys today. But first, I just have to say, there are two things that are really fucking with me recently, and one of them is daylight savings. I mean, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I am a fall back kind of girl. I am not a spring forward kind of girl. I'm a morning person. So like it really screws with me that it's dark at 7 a.m. Like it just is not conducive to the lifestyle I want to lead. And it really is messing with me greatly. So anyway, if you're a spring forward kind of person, you know, rock on. I'm really happy for you, but it is really messing with me. Also, something that's fucking with me is recently I saw this psychic, right? And it's like this really, really well-known psychic. Like his wait list is crazy long. If you want to know who it is, like you can DM me later and we'll talk about it. So I was so excited for my session with him. And the whole time he's telling me about like who I am and what I'm going to do in this life and totally like hyping me up, like blowing smoke up my ass. Like I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna take on the world. Like nothing can get in my way. Like thinking that my life is gonna be incredible. So I'm like, okay, no, this guy's legit. Cause of course when the psychic tells you something you wanna hear, you're like, oh yeah, of course he's real. So then he like, so he goes into your whole life and everything. And then he goes into what your health concerns will be in the future. And he was like, you're so lucky. Like, you you know, knock on wood, by the way, God, let's just knock on wood that the, none of this happens to me and comes back to bite me. But he was like, so luckily, like, you're not going to have a lot of major health concerns in this lifetime. I'll tell you guys about my past life in a second. But he was like, you will break both your ankles at one point. And that has stuck with me in a way that I can't quite express. I, it, it is, I mean, talk about limiting beliefs. It is like this crazy, it is this insane thing that I just can't stop thinking about. Like I was invited to go roller skating with my friend last week. I didn't go, not because I didn't want to, but because I'm afraid of my fucking ankles. Every time that I'm walking, I'm afraid I'm gonna break my ankle. My neighbors bought moon shoes and were bopping around carefree, living their life. I'm at home afraid of fucking breaking my ankles. So, you know, I don't really know what my advice is here because in my head, I'm like, okay, Jay, just don't believe it. It's a psychic, just don't believe it and go on living your life. But then I have to throw out all the good shit that he said too. And then I don't think I'm gonna take on the world. But he also said that, this is very important, he said that my past life was very, very sad. He said that I was an alcoholic that lived alone in a very small apartment in London and that, and I was divorced three times, not once, not twice, but thrice. And I had a severe alcoholism, as I mentioned, problem. And my career was like making other people famous and successful, but I never found my purpose. So I died of alcoholism and lived a very sad life. So, I mean, talk about a fucking complex. This guy is just dishing out for $200 a session. It's unbelievable. Now I'm like not only ashamed of my past self in this life, I'm ashamed of my past life. It's just, it's devastating. It's just devastating. So. Anyway, I hope you guys are less riddled with these anxieties than I am. But um, I want to also mention that I have been, let's just switch gears because you know what? There's just no moral of that story. 
I want to mention that I have been loving the voicemails and texts I've been getting. If you've sent one, you've probably gotten a response from me. Um, and we've been chatting and it's been so fun talking to you guys. And so like, I just want to reiterate, please, please send those in. Um, I just love to hear from you. So it can be really about anything that you've ever felt alone in going through anything that you've ever had another woman's story that helped you get through something difficult. You know, you can talk to me about your psychic experiences. You can talk to me about topics that you wish more women were open about with each other or would stop lying about friendship, breakup stories, really anything. So call me, beat me, please um, keep sending those in because I love them. Uh, Today we have an episode with Ruthie Friedlander. I first heard of Ruthie because of The Chain, which is a peer support group she founded for women struggling with eating disorders. So eating disorders is a topic we haven't covered yet on Tell Me About It, and it's something that is obviously hurting so many people. So I want to throw a trigger warning in here uh, before we get started, because we do go into detail about her eating disorder and her treatment. We also talked about the shitty feeling of ending a friendship and analyze the many different ways to handle it, all of which are pretty crappy, um, as we all know. We talked about Ruthie's battle with an eating disorder, as I mentioned, and the treatment center that changed her life. A little background on Ruthie. Ruthie is the founder of At Large Agency, an editorial and content consulting agency that works with brands across fashion and lifestyle. She used to serve as the digital director of InStyle and the deputy director of L.com. And before that, she worked at Chanel in the row in digital strategy positions. And as I mentioned before, she is the co-founder of The Chain, which is such an awesome, awesome nonprofit. I wanted to have Ruthie on because there are so few people that speak so openly about eating disorders and the treatment centers that they go to. And I think that what she's got going on with The Chain and a really great resource for anyone struggling, I can't recommend it enough. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear our conversation because it really was, in Ruthie's words, like a true BFF therapy session where we talked about all kinds of things and she was so honest and I really think that it'll help some other people who are struggling with the same thing find the language to talk about their struggles and hopefully, you know, use the chain as a resource. Okay, so let's get started. Here's Ruthie. Hi, Ruthie. Oh, Hi. <laughs> you can take your water first if you need. <laughs> Thank good. you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you doing this with me. So are you in New York? You said you're in New York, right? Yeah, I am in New York. I am currently in New York City. My husband and I have been going back and forth between East Hampton and the city. But right now in my little apartment on the floor. But you're back. <laughs> Were you always in? You're on the floor. Amazing. <laughs> have you like, have you always been in New York or did you move back and forth yeah. like throughout quarantine? Did you do the hop? No, we've been, we've been in New York the entire time. We have not left. Wow. Wow. So I was reading a lot about your wedding, actually. Mm. When was that? It was actually, tomorrow's our two-year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Happy anniversary. But but I keep saying that we should get points, like more year points, because our first, like half of that time was spent during quarantine. So I feel like I've been married for 20 years. Yes, I think that it it (laughs) adds a few years to your married life in quarantine, for sure. But I want to talk about your wedding because it looked so fun. It was. It was so much fun. I mean, I I am a person who runs anxious. Yeah, um, me too. So figuring, <laughs> yes. so figuring out how to have fun with it was really important to me from the start, you know, because mm-hmm. I knew that if I didn't 
make that a priority, I just would have been a fucking mess the whole time. Okay. I f- you and I are kindred spirits in that way. <laughs> yeah. But my boyfriend is Jewish and I feel like I was really learning through your wedding, like all the Jewish traditions that I'm like, okay, maybe I'll have to do that. Maybe I'll have to do this. There's a great story about that, which is that I, I'm super Jewish. So my parents are rabbis, my mom, my dad, and my stepdad. Um, and I'm really into the tradition community yeah. aspect of it. And one of the things that you do if you're traditional is you walk around your husband, I think it's seven eight times, times, right? Or yeah, seven times, seven or yeah. Times. And like 10 minutes before the ceremony started, I turned to my rabbi and I was like, I'm really scared. I'm going to get nauseous walking around that many times. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of nauseating, it looks like, you know? She, she was like, so what, how many times do you want to walk around? I was like, I don't know, like three. She's like, great, go for it. Oh. It's like, you make your own rules. Okay, and I, was I love like, that. I totally down for that. Yeah, I love that because like, I am like rules and obligation, like phobic, like truly. Me so too. I'm like- I mean, traditions are beautiful. Like there is something to be said about that. But I like feel like like everyone's like, are, like when are you going to get married? And like, aren't you excited? And I am so excited for like the day of. The planning keeps me up at night. I'm yeah. like, holy cow. I don't think my heart can take it. I don't like that kind of stress. Like the stress where someone's like upset because they didn't get seated in the right area or like. It's ooh. a lot. It's a yeah. lot. And it's really it. I mean, depending on the size of your wedding and the type of wedding you have, it's a really nice time to evaluate the people in your life. Oh, I, feel yes. like, I feel like COVID's done that as well. So Yes, for sure. For sure. But you had a combination of, did you do the Hora? You did, right? Yes, I did. So you did the Hora and had Mr. Chow, which are two yes. of my favorite <laughs> things in the world. I am a huge Mr. Chow and a huge, I don't know which one I like more, the horror or Mr. Chow. I wanted to have, we wanted to have our wedding at Chow's in Tribeca or on 57th Street, but it wasn't big enough. And my wedding planner, she was like, if nothing else, I will figure out how to get Chow's involved in some way. So we walked into the car um, after leaving the synagogue en route to the Frick, which is where our party was. Right. And there was a full Chow spread set up in (gasps) the Suburban. And it was just everything. And when my wedding planner, Jung Lee, saw the picture, she was like, you were supposed to put something on over your dress before you had the satay. (laughs) Truly, the peanut sauce is like going to be all... That is what dreams are made of, like having a big Mr. Chow meal after. Also, like preventing you from like getting sick from alcohol, like, you know what I mean? Getting some nice food. That's a great thing. A hundred percent. I mean, wow. Mr. Chow, it was just the two of you, right? So it was like kind of like a romantic thing too. Yeah. Chow for two in a car. Chow for two. Okay. I'm taking notes. That's like what I need. I need to escape my wedding for an hour and just go eat Mr. Chow. It was amazing. But now we need to get the interview started. I could talk to you about your wedding forever. But I like to start by talking about your 20s. So Mm -hmm. how old were you when you got married? So I was 31 when I got married. Okay, so you were out of the dreaded decade of your 20s. I was out of my 20s. Um, I definitely, if you were to ask me in high school or any time before that, will you be married before you're 30? I would have been like a hundred percent married. I have kids. Like the idea that- Don't we all think that? Yeah. I mean, the idea (laughs) that I would have waited that long was just not something that was like in my mind's eye. And- Are you originally from New York? 
I am. So I lived in Roslyn on Long Island until I was 12. And then I moved into Manhattan when my mom got remarried. And I, you know, all of my friends got married in their early 20s or mid 20s. And, you know, I I think back on my 20s and among like alongside being just like a freaking mess in so many ways. I mean, anyone I would have been with at that time would have had to be on board with me becoming an entirely different person yes. by the time I was 31. Luckily, I, I met my husband at a time where I was already, you know, mid transition into said new person. And, and for me, that involves a lot of things. It involved becoming sober, it involved recovering from an eating disorder, it involved just like a whole bunch of endings of relationships, beginnings of new ones, coming to terms with some of my own personal faults and and owning them. And I just think back at, you know, 25 and and where I was, you know, I was living in a studio apartment on 7th Avenue. I had this dream job. I was working at Chanel and on the, on the surface, I had everything together and I was just completely it's like every bright eye song, if if that reference applies <laughs> yes, to anyone who's yes. listening, is like per- perfect makeup, but I was barely scraping by. Right, um, right. I guess that's dashboard. But um, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a really, really hard time for me. And I think I look back at some of it, especially with like the guy stuff and the dating stuff, mm. and I think like, you know, wow, that was fun. I got to like I dated all the different kinds of guys from all walks of life, and I really but I was so unhappy with myself Mm. and with Mm -hmm. the fit with my friends. And I really was, you know, one thing about my twenties that I think a lot of people don't talk about is I felt such a strong need to stay connected to my friends from my teenage years. I'm applauding because yes. Yeah. And it became really destructive for me because while they're all wonderful people and great people. We didn't share anything in common anymore. And that became really, really difficult and painful for me to let go of those relationships or just let those relationships kind of grow apart and form new ones. And I felt like it was a huge failure and that, you know, they didn't like me or that, you know, I I just, I didn't feel like I knew myself enough to figure out how to go out and make friends. Mm -hmm. And I feel like most of my 20s were spent really dealing with the loss of high school in a lot of ways and like the socialization I had I had come to rely upon in high school. How did most of those friendships end? Like was it your choice or their choice or a combination or You know, it it was a combination. I think that like ultimately you know the the people that made sense to be in my life when I was 14 are not the same people that were meant to be in my life when I was 30. Why do we, like, why do we say that they are? Do you know <laughs> I what I mean? Like, I, I was talking to like my boyfriend's sister-in-law, which is random, but I was talking to her and she was like, yeah, I've never like talked about how taboo it is to end friendships. Yeah. And I was like, you're 35. Like, how, what do you mean? You know, like, I don't understand why, where we got this narrative that like you have to keep all your friendships to yeah. be the perfect woman. Or that like, there has to be a reason Yes. for it to end. And I yes. think, I think that like, you know, the answer to your question is like, I think I felt like there needed to be a reason for it to end. I think mm-hmm. I felt like I needed to have something happen or a fight or an instance in reality. Like, I think we all just kind of grew apart. Um, 
And, you know, some of us definitely still talk, but I think that coming, giving yourself permission to become a new person and still love the people that you loved from afar was Mm -hmm. a very important lesson for me that I learned in my twenties that you might not have the same relationship with the people that you love, Mm -hmm. but you can still not have negative feelings towards them mm-hmm. or anger towards them. Yeah, I always find it so beautiful when people can, you know, say that, okay, like we've both grown out of this friendship and let's part ways. And if I see you in the street, like we'll hug. Like mine have always ended with someone feeling real bitter, like on the other you know what I mean? Yeah. Or just like some animosity. Like I don't travel to certain places that I know that they'll be, you know what I mean? Like that's how it feels for me. It's awkward. Totally. And I feel like that happened with a lot of my relationships. And um, thankfully I, I was given the opportunity uh, in large part, thanks to my recovery process you know, I was given the opportunity to learn the tools to go back to some of those people and say, listen, like, this is why I acted the way I was, I did. And I wasn't emotionally or psychologically prepared to handle this in a mature way. And um, I own that. And I'm not looking to have this friendship to the extent that I had it. But I just want you to know that I recognize that the way I acted was not Rational. I'm like, do you have a draft of that letter I can use? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because that is exact. I have planned that letter or like that speech so many times in my head. Like I can own it. Like I didn't handle the ending of our friendship correctly. Like I know that, especially when I ended ones because like I was depressed or anxious, like those, like I didn't have the bandwidth to handle anything in my life appropriately. You know, so it's like, I do want to have those conversations because there can be so much clarity. And then I think, fuck, there has to be an end to this conversation. Right. And that's the thing is that there's not, there's not an end. And like, when I think back on the conversations that I've had with, with some of those people from my past and some of the people that I still think of in many ways as my, as my closest friends, just because they were witness to so many Mm -hmm. things, there is, there is no resolution. It's Mm -hmm. more just like, I feel like. I left my cards on the table and they know, I feel like they know, and they know it from a really clear headed place from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And, and that gives me some solace. Um, And I also really like looking, you know, even if it's just like watching on Instagram, like looking at the fact that they have these lives with friends that I've never met and kids and this whole universe that exists that I'm not a part of. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely an interesting thing. I think that, I wish that my 20s had been spent having fun and preparing for adulthood. Mm -hmm. For me, my 20s was spent mourning my the end of high school and the end of those relationships and feeling like my friends were moving on and I just was stuck and angry that my friends were moving on and that moving on you mean like professionally or moving on just with their lives socially making new friends wanting to try new things moving new places because on paper you were doing all those things too you were at Chanel the row like all of these places from a work perspective I've always been a winner I've always Mm -hmm. been really good at that but for me like the smallest things would make me feel anxious. Like we would be going to the same bar for six months and all of a sudden, like they would want to change the bar. Like my friends would be like, oh, let's try this new bar. And I'd be like, why are we going to this new bar? Like, why would we have to change bars? What's wrong with the bar that we're going to? Like it would, it would cause me such agina. Mm-hmm. 
and someone would like bring a friend from college that we didn't know and everyone would be excited to meet this new person and I would be like who is this person why are they intruding on my territory I was just very terrified of any kind of change yeah and watched the healthy people that I was around be really mm-hmm. excited by change. Yeah. And I didn't have the vocabulary to identify that that's what was going on. I just felt right. constantly threatened. So is that kind of what you mean by like, you were just scraping by, like you were just like not a full realized version of yourself? A hundred percent. Like if someone had asked me like, what are your top five interests when I was 25? Whatever I would have said to you would have been a lie. I didn't have an interest in anything except for yeah. making sure people weren't mad at me and doing well at my job and that was about it. I love that you said that because I think like we all, I mean, even when people ask me what my hobbies are, I'm like, I'm sweating, Yeah, you know, <laughs> like it's yeah. panic inducing. And it's like really in your twenties, like maybe you don't have a morning routine and hobbies and interests like that are so easy. You know, it's like those people that have those, God bless you. But like so much of your twenties is spent like taking inventory of your life, freaking out, making mistakes, handling your life like incorrectly, yeah. you know, but there can be so much shame around that. I think that I... I needed to accept the fact that the person that I was in high school was not the person I was anymore. You know, I had agreed, agreed. (laughs) uh, And you would think that like by 25, 26, 27, you know, most people have, have done that already. Honestly, I hadn't. Um, And part of that is a testament to how much I loved high school. And part of that is that I was stunted. Like I really, you know, whether it's revisionist history or accurate, like I have a memory of those four years of my life being years where I loved myself and loved how Mm -hmm. I looked and loved how I felt and felt secure in my friendships and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. And I felt that the second I graduated, that all stopped and never came back. And I think that I needed to come to a place where I accepted the ending of that and was okay without it before I was in friendship or romantic relationship, any kind of relationship with anyone, to be honest. Because I think I spent a really, really long time seeking the same. Totally. No, I mean, I can relate to that in so many ways. I think people with mental illness also, like, I I either didn't realize or my anxiety didn't really manifest itself until I was like in my mid-20s. So I would always look at that high school version of myself or even college version of myself and be like, Oh, look how like wide she smiled, like old pictures, like just fantasizing about this person and being in, 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 in therapy, incessantly talking about it, being like, I, I like telling my therapist about who I was when I was in high school and, and saying, I want to get back there so badly. And like, yeah. and then you ultimately realize like, I, I don't want to be, <laughs> yes. Like all of my mental illnesses were like there, but I just right. didn't pay attention to them. And like, I, yeah, I had all the wrong friendships and I was a mess and it yeah. was all like so much bullshit, you know? So like, I was just like trying to be perfect all the time and just like in this hand and people pleasing constantly to the point where it like made me very sick. And it's just, but I agree with you. Like that can be a really hard thing in your twenties is like, cause you're growing so much and it feels all so foreign. So it's like, you know, you want to go back there. I think it was also confusing for me because from an early age, I was always told how mature I was and Mm -hmm. the kind of strange juxtaposition of being told I was super mature and feeling completely stunted by my high school experience Mm -hmm. felt very discombobulating to me. Yeah. 
So I've heard you say like you had a lot of mean girl experiences. I feel like people who doesn't right like I mean people that are blessed like with not being exempt from that like God bless you but I certainly was not like I dealt with my fair share of it and it does carry into your adulthood like it's very hard yeah yeah those wounds are real yeah real yeah so did you ever like struggle with not knowing who you are I guess that's exactly what we're talking about right now like so you struggled for like when did you start to feel like I know who I am like I'm more comfortable in my skin uh, for me, I mean, I I identified myself by who I was friends with up mm. until I went into treatment for my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And that was really difficult because, and, and, you know, I'll say it again, the people I was friends with weren't bad people. They were wonderful people in high school, but they weren't my people. I just thought they were my people. I just wanted them to be my people so badly um, yeah, so that like I morphed into it. Exactly. Yeah. And... I think that when, you know, basically my, my story is that I, I've had an eating disorder for as long as I can remember. I have a memory of being eight years old and looking down at my legs and drawing, like being bored in class and looking down at my legs and drawing a line on my thigh, like a butcher and like thinking like, oh, this part of my thigh should be chopped off. Um, and using laxatives in high school and all this stuff, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really, say or get help for my eating disorder until I was 30. Wow. And when I was 30, I went into treatment and for the first time in my entire life did group therapy. It was a requirement of part of the treatment program I was in. And Mm -hmm. I sat in a room with a group of girls who were aged 16 to 30. I was the oldest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, these are my people. Like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I heard people saying things that I thought that I like that were just concoctions in my head my whole life or like unique to me. And like, I was so crazy to think this way or so this like very specific, you know, I'll give you an example. Like every time I would get into an elevator, I would clock if I was the thinnest person in the elevator. And I remember Mm -hmm. sitting in this room and another girl saying, so, so the other day I was in the elevator and I did the thing and I was like, what's the thing? And she said it. And I was like, oh my God, other people do that. I was like, completely flabbergasted. And and that sort of realization of having people that thought the same way that I did, even if it was in a sick way, that was extremely powerful for me. And I think that that was the first time where I felt like, you know, you know, those, (laughs) those M&M commercials where they're like, it does exist. It's like, it's like, there yeah. are people like this who look quote unquote, who look normal and mm-hmm. have quote unquote cool jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, walk amongst us that also are as fucked up in the head as I am and are surviving and also dedicating enough time to fixing themselves or healing or whatever you want to call it. Yes. And I I would say that that was the first time, you know, that I was really able to feel authentic to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just by realizing like, there's so much of me that you probably kept set like secret, right? Because you All know, and so many thoughts and intrusive. Yeah. And like seeing that other people, even just hearing other people say it out loud can feel like, oh, wait, I get part of my life back. 100%. You know, like just, but you know, it's a really wonderful thing. 
So we talked about, we compare ourselves to our high school selves, but like just your past self, like I think remedying that relationship can be so healing and especially like, you know, having gone through adversity in your twenties and stuff in like, you know, when maybe other people are not (laughs) just like living or living better than you are or whatever. How do you deal with being ashamed of your past self? Something that I feel all the time. Um, I'll start by saying that I feel more anger than I do shame Mm -hmm. in that I oftentimes find myself being angry that it's harder for me to just be happy than other people, like that I have to work at that, um, or that some things, um, that help people perform like taking Adderall or drinking or, whatever your vice might be that I, because of who I am, can't do that. Mm -hmm. I get angry at that more than I'm ashamed that Mm. I was addicted to Adderall um, or ashamed that I had an eating disorder. I'm pissed that I can't skip lunch because it means that I have to take an hour out of my day, which I could be devoting to work. It makes me angry that I have to make decisions to actively keep myself healthy when I see people around me that just live their lives and them skipping lunch doesn't mean anything. Like they skip it or they eat it and it is what it is. And it's, I just don't have that luxury. So for me, that's something I struggle with every single day. And when you live with someone, even when that person's a man, even when that person is someone that loves you endlessly, like you still, it's still something you see like, okay, like, well, he didn't eat lunch today. So does that mean that I can't eat lunch today? Mm. You know, like I, I, it's much less shame than it is frustration and anger that I know and have come to accept that for the rest of my life, I have to wake up every day and I have to choose that I'm going to make positive decisions that mm. day because it's a choice, right? Like it, I, I could make bad choices. Right. I know what that leads to. Um, so I don't think I've, you know, for me, the shame comes from, how I've handled myself with other people, not how I've handled myself with myself Yes, because I've forgiven myself for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd say when I think about some of the friendships that ended in ways that I'm not happy about, like I feel shameful for how I acted then. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the mental illness aspects, for the addictions, for the eating disorder, for stuff like that, I don't feel shame. I feel frustration. I couldn't, I like, I think that that is the most incredible thing you just said. Like, I love that so much because I feel that in so many ways too. You know, like, I think we all feel that way in some capacity, except for, you know, those people that life's just easy for, God bless you. Yeah. But why do I need Lexapro to like get me out of bed in the morning? You know, like that sucks. And would I love to be the girl who didn't need that? Yes. But those are not the cards that I was genetically dealt, you know? Right. And so it is hard. It's like very, it can be, yeah, it can be really a shitty feeling to feel like I can't, it's not as easy for me. Period. It's just not as easy. And like, sometimes I'm just too fucking tired. Yeah. And sometimes I just want, I don't, I don't want to do it and allowing myself to feel that and then say too bad, Yeah. get up and do it. Yes. <laughs> Take your medicine yes. and yes. eat three meals yes. and ask for help and text your friends yes. and talk to your husband and call your sister. Yes. You know, that it, 
it's all of that. Yeah. So like when you talk about like being addicted to Adderall and all of that, like Mm -hmm. are these all, what did it take you getting a hold of? Like we're going to get more into the treatment and everything, but was it a mental health issue that had these branches of like addiction and other things? Or did you have to get addiction like handled first and then you could address the eating disorder? You know, like how, how did it all fit together? I got it all, it all was one and the same for me. Um, it all stems from the same place. It's hard for me to really disconnect. Listen, for me, my, my eating disorder is all about control and perfection. Mm-hmm. So the way that the Adderall came into play. It makes you perfect and not hungry. Work, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty clear. And there. a robot. Um, but yeah, it's so, okay. So I think that, was it all about weight? No, of course it was not all about weight. It was all about control um, and stamina. Uh, So once I was able to kind of get to the root of that and deal with that in treatment, I think that all of it, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's kind of, I mean, that's certainly when I stopped taking it. And also when I took a look at some of my other habits, like things as seemingly inconsequential as like drinking six cups of coffee Mm -hmm. a day and, you know, like just like erratic kind of obsessive behaviors, disordered behaviors, right. along with the not eating. Um, it all kind of, that that's when I got help for all of it at once. Yeah. I wonder, like, did you, when you finally did quit, you know, like the Adderall and the coffee and just like the disordered behaviors, as you said, like, I think that's really scary for a lot of people because on the other side, the demands are the same. And you've always been that girl that like can do all of those things. And, you know, like, do you look at like your past work and be like, I can't do that shit anymore. Like, I don't know how I did that, you know? Yeah. And I wish I could sit here and say, and I still do as much work as I used to, but I don't. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. I I don't. I, um, at, at five o'clock, I get really tired mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to look at my computer anymore. And, um, during COVID now that we're in quarantine, like sometimes I take naps during the day cause I get really tired. Mm-hmm. And I, once I put my computer down at the end of the day, like rarely do I feel like I have the stamina to open it back up. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I work for myself now, so I don't have the luxury of necessarily n- not working all time, being on call, I'm, you know, I'm on call, but I also have the luxury. I also do have the luxury of setting boundaries and it's up to me to set those boundaries and to say to my clients, listen, like these are the hours I work Mm -hmm. and these are the hours you can always depend on me for. And these are the hours I'll do my best to get back to you when I'm not, you know, that's up to me. Um, like showing up as you showing up. Yeah, exactly. But no, I look at how much I worked in the past and I look back at it both in like a longing way mm-hmm. and in a like, wow, that's really fucking scary right. kind of way, like, right. you know? Right. And I also watch other people that I love work longer than I do, longer hours or, you know, I don't want to say harder, but differently, right. certainly. With our busyness, like how we glorify busyness, it's so horrible. Exactly. And that is a constant struggle for me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that is constantly a struggle for me. And it's something I talk a lot about with my family because they're all very busy people mm-hmm. with very busy jobs and big jobs and big careers. And, you know, I don't work at Chanel anymore or L anymore. I don't, I don't have a brand to hang my hat on in the way that I used to. So it's all on me. So at five o'clock, if I'm not working because I've had it, 
it's that's hard for me to accept yeah. that I can make that decision, right? You know, and give yourself the grace um, to do so. And, exactly, mm-hmm. and not taken Adderall and just work spiraling for another five hours. Right, which can be tempting, I'd imagine. Very tempting, yeah. Um, Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about your eating disorder and your experience with that. I so appreciate you being open and honest about it because it is plaguing many people, you know, needless Mm -hmm. to say, and we need more people like you who are open about it and it's just awesome that you lend yourself to be that person, I think is really cool. So if you don't mind, can you kind of walk me through your journey from the beginning? I know, like you said earlier, that it really started when you were eight. What, yeah. Can you, like, do you really know, like, where was that modeled for you? Like, or was it modeled or did you come up with that on your own? Like, where did that come into an eight-year-old's brain? I think that I remember being very fearful of my body changing. Mm. I don't remember it being tied to weight gain Mm. or getting bigger, but I do have a lot of memories. I took dance class when I was younger. I was, I was a dancer um, and very involved in musical theater. And I have memories of watching the older girls come in as my class was ending and being terrified of their boobs, Mm. like seeing their bras underneath their leotards and just being like, oh my God, like I, I never want boobs. Mm. Um, And I don't know where that came from. You know, like, I don't know where that came from, whether it was like me being afraid of sex or Mm. me being afraid of growing up Mm -hmm. or me just being afraid. Of change. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know where it came from. You know, I had a sister, an older sister who very much was a positive force in my life around things like Mm -hmm. that. So I didn't have, there's something I can pinpoint as affecting that negatively, but I do have these memories of being very, very fearful of certain milestones in becoming a woman, whether it was getting my period or Mm. having to get a bra or going to the OBGYN for the first time. Or, you know, I remember being very young and having very, very deeply rooted fears Mm -hmm. of these things happening to me. Did you develop early? No, No. I didn't. Um, I developed totally normal. Like I got my period when I was 12. That's when I started wearing my first bra. Um, You know, everything was like pretty Sander. Mm -hmm. But I, I do remember feeling like I was not mentally prepared for it Mm -hmm. for some reason. And I think for me, weight gain and my body changing just went hand in hand. So the earliest memories for me of my eating disorder just simply came from me realizing that I could, that I had the power to control how my body Mm -hmm. looked. So the idea that like, if I did something like stopped eating, stopped drinking soda for a week, I saw that the number on the scale got lower. Right. It wasn't so much like I want to be skinny like a model or mm-hmm. I want to look like this celebrity. It was more like I like that I have the power to manipulate this All thing about, about control. Myself. All about control. And that's kind of how it started. And it kept on going like that. And I like kept like going like you did, like when did food start to become an aspect like teen? Immediately. I like became a vegetarian, um, simply to see if I could, 
Um, I went, I, you know, there was this like ongoing joke in my family that I only ate white food. Right. Same. Weird. It was like yeah. this weird, weird thing. Yeah. So it was like kind of exercising like your will in terms of food. Yes. Okay. And like in high school, everyone's kind of doing that in a weird way, right? In high school, everyone's doing, in high school, I went on, I, I started doing slim fast mm-hmm. and taking laxatives. And I would say I, when I was 15, I was like, wow, I've been kind of screwing with my body for eight years and nobody has realized. So I guess I'm just going to keep doing yeah. it. And I kind of spent another 15 years doing it and it it wasn't until I was 30 that anybody said anything. So walk me through those next 15 years. Like, so did it, yeah. did it accelerate? Like, did you just really start to like limit eating or, you know, are eating yeah. disorders, you know, educate me, please. Like, are they typically yeah. like one symptom? Like if you're anorexic, you only don't eat or do you dabble in like binge eating also? Like, is it, you know, everyone's different. Um, for me, I, I never was bulimic. Um, but for me, I kind of, did a lot of different things. Um, but I would say it was all around control. I also struggle with some very real health problems. So I had a heart condition Mm. that I had surgery for when I was 15. I was put on a medication for it that kind of screwed with me, made my brain really foggy. Mm -hmm. Um, I started getting seizures when I was in my twenties. They put me on an anti-seizure medication, an anti-convulsive, which, which made my yeah. appetite suppressed. Yeah. And around that time in my early twenties, I was put in touch with a functional medicine doctor, kind of like this idea of like, I've been to every one of the best doctors and I I'm getting these migraines and these rashes and these seizures and no one can figure out what's going on. Like, let me just try something different. Yeah. Like let's go to a person who does acupuncture right. and, uh, And he put me on an elimination diet, Mm. uh, which I had never heard of before. Um, And basically I went on this elimination diet and, you know, he took all this blood and he was like, you can't eat gluten, you can't eat grains, you can't eat. And I mean, the list of things that I could eat was like nothing. And I was like, okay, like if this is going to make me feel better, that's great. And I went on that diet and lost a tremendous amount of weight and started just receiving endless amounts of compliments on how I looked. And I was never, I was never big. I was always very average Mm -hmm. weight, but I, but I shed about 15 pounds and people started telling me how good I was looking. And then I just started getting more and more seizures. Mm. And finally my neurologist was like, you need to, you need to go to the hospital for a few days so that we can figure this out because we're not getting any epilepsy readings on you. We're not wow. getting, like, we have no idea why you're having seizures. Wow. So like, so I went to the hospital, they hooked me up to this crazy machine where they like plug all these things into your head. And they observed me for like four days. And finally this guy came in and was like, you have like a serious eating disorder. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you have no ability to control like your brain has no ability to handle anything so like the seizures that I was having was because I just didn't have like anytime anything stressed me out or anything I had nothing in my body to it was I mean I quite honestly don't really even understand the medical aspect of it but um he was really the first person who ever said to me like 
you, you are very sick and this is what you need to do. And you need to go to treatment. And if you don't go to treatment, you're going to die. And when you said that, did that sound like the truth or did that sound like, no, I don't, you know, or did that like, did that feel freeing? Did it feel terrible? Definitely didn't feel freeing. I felt embarrassed that they didn't find anything on my brain scan. I felt like there had to have been something seriously wrong with me for me to be convulsing in the middle of the floor, the middle of an office place. Like the fact that this is because like I'm dieting, like that doesn't make any sense to me logically. Like, did you think like in your soul, like if you think back to that time, like, was it a secret that you had or were you really just like, I'm just dieting like everyone else is because you're around all these people that probably glorify skipping meals. No, it was definitely a secret. You know, yeah. So you felt like kind of outed probably. I definitely felt outed. um, And I felt angry that it took this stranger that met me for 10 minutes to identify what had happened when it had been going on for almost 20 years. Like that was, or for over 20 years, that was really a very painful thing for me, especially because I do come from an extremely close family, Mm -hmm. loving family, um, really hands-on family. We're extremely close. We talk about everything. And, you know, the idea that no one had confronted me on this Mm. or thought that this was serious enough to confront me about was really problematic for Mm -hmm. me. In like the way, like, did you feel betrayed or, or just like that, like, what was that feeling? Like that it was a problem for you that no one mentioned. I think at first I felt like, and this is something that I have heard from a lot of other eating disorder survivors. Like I'm not sick enough to need help Mm. because if I was sick enough to need help, there would have been an intervention and I would have been taken from my home and It's kind of like back to that, like what we were talking about with female friendships, even like you think there needs to be one big explosion and sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. Totally. Totally. And that made me really angry that like I had spent most of my life focused on food and that nobody had no, like, or that nobody had said Mm -hmm. anything or, or flagged it, I should say. And I was pissed off at this guy who came in so nonchalantly and was like, okay, so you need to go to treatment and you'll go to treatment and then you'll be better and have a good day. Yeah. And we're just charging you. And like, I had, I was like, what are yeah. you talking? Like, like give up my whole life. Wait, okay. I'm easy. Ha- I'm having seizures because I'm anorexic. Right. What the fuck are you talking right. about? And I was annoyed. I was like, I've been in therapy my whole life. Yeah. Like I've already, I've been doing all yes. of this already. What are you talking yes. about? So I think especially for people from New York or who come from families that quote, tell each other everything um, to then all of a sudden be confronted with something that like hasn't been talked Mm -hmm. about uh, was very jarring. Yeah. (laughs) Did you go to that doctor's appointment by yourself or like, did you have to come out to your family? No, I mean, I was in the hospital and the doctor came into the hospital room to say it. And my mom was in the room with me. Wow. Is that like against? No, they asked. Yeah. Yeah. So like, was it, so you left that, like the hospital and were you like, what the fuck do I do now? Like, I've got to go to work on Monday. You know, like how, how did that, like, how'd you get from that point to then like treatment center? I left and was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, okay. I got to go to work on Monday. Right. Um, (laughs) I called my therapist who had been with me 
for years. And you never confronted the food thing with your therapist. We talked, we talked about it in the, in that I had food phobias Mm -hmm. and food played into a lot of stuff, but not into the, he had never been like, you're anorexic or you look really skinny Mm -hmm. or, you know, and nothing like that. And interestingly enough, he, you know, he had a conversation with the doctor with my permission Mm -hmm. and he said, listen, like, I can't treat you unless you go into a program immediately because I don't have the expert. He's not an eating disorder therapist. He's, you know, he has, and I took that as a rejection. Mm, of course, no, that makes so much sense. And breached the fuck yeah. out. <laughs> I'd be like, "You're fucking abandoning me! Like, how dare exactly. you give me an ultimatum, sir?" Exactly. I lost. Yeah, it. it probably felt like your world was just crumbling at that point. Completely crumbling. And then I went to the plate. I went for like a, you know, a consult to the place that was recommended to me, and they were like you're going to have to leave your job and you're going to have to do this. And are you ready for this? And I was like, what the fuck? I I am not like an 80 pound skeleton. Like I'm going, like, I'm, I don't want to be the fattest girl in treatment. And I'm not like, this is not for me. And like, there are 15 year olds walking around here. Like, just give me a doctor and a meal plan and like, let me go on my merry way. And they were like, you can't come here then. And my therapist was basically like, this is the program you have to do. And I did it. Oh, you did. Wow. So you stuck with that one. I stuck I heard with you that say one. that like you, it's hard to kind of find what treatment center or like what treatment yeah. to do. I mean, in high school, in high school, when I really had talked to my parents about feeling like I was struggling, I had looked at other treatment centers that were just terrible mm-hmm. And there was one point when I was working at L before things got really bad that I actually sought out help on my own, just on a therapeutic level. Like I just wanted to talk to someone Mm -hmm. and I had called a treatment center and been like, you know, just like, hi, like I'd like, you know, I'm I'm having a lot of issues with food. I've struggled with eating disorder for a long time and I'd really love to come in and talk to someone. And they asked me what my BMI was and they told me that my BMI wasn't low enough to come in and talk to them. I bet your part. Are you serious? Yeah. I hope they're not so, in business anymore. They certainly oh. are, but I use every, yeah, I use every outlet yes. I can to tell That's people not ridiculous. to ridiculous. So, so like there, there was a lot of that. And I do have to say like in coming out and sharing my stories with people, I do hear from a lot of parents of teenagers, especially how hard it is to find programs that will allow you, you know, I hear a lot from people. Here's what I'll say. Mm -hmm. I hear a lot from parents and also adults. I can't find a treatment center that lets me live my life and also get treatment. Mm. And my response is like, that's because you have to stop living your life. Exactly. (laughs) So I went to this mental health like group class thing and I totally thought like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, keep living my life, stay at the same job that was giving me agita every day. But you learn that you kind of have to pause your whole life and strip yourself of the things that might be making you sicker. Yeah. And that was the first time in my entire life that it ever yeah. happened. I mean, like, I am a white privileged Jewish girl from New York City. Like, I've never been told that, you know, like, I've never been told I couldn't do anything. Right. Like, I grew up with no rules, no boundaries. Like, 
you know, putting me in that environment was so powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the environment? Was it inpatient or outpatient? It was IOP, which stands for intensive outpatient for those who don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, And it was three days a week. Uh, And in addition to that, once a week, I would have to go to out to dinner to a restaurant with my exposure therapy. I love some exposure therapy. We would have to order from the menu um, and I wasn't allowed to make any alterations. So you couldn't be like, I'd like the Caesar salad without chicken. You'd have to just order something on the fucking menu. And for someone who has food phobias and is told to meet someone in Times Square at a barbecue restaurant, that can be completely terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. It can be terrifying (laughs) for anyone, but yeah, absolutely. I ate at some places that I wouldn't wish my worst enemies eat at. And it was Um, like a form of exposure therapy, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, We did drama therapy. We did talk therapy. We did exposure therapy. We did group um, meal support. Two times a week, I had two of my meals at group. We had class, which basically was like science class, learning about nutrition. It was intense. Yeah. It was was intense. and I was the oldest person there. And how did that feel? Uh, I really connected with the younger girl, like the ver- like the 15-year-olds, because I saw myself mm-hmm. in them. Like you never were like, I'm not going to fraternize with any of these people. Like I'm in, like. No, I still talk oh, to like. Oh, that's th- wonderful. I, like, we, yeah. like there are some of us that still stay in touch. I mean, one of them wasn't like came to my wedding. Oh, like so nice. I, you know, I. I um, became quite close with them. Group is, for anyone who's never done group, it's like the most bizarre thing because you are completely thrown into this experience where these, in my case, 11 women know more about you than anyone in your life, including your husband or your parents or your sister. And then when you stop, they're gone. And like, sometimes you can figure out how to make those relationships work, but it's not, but oftentimes you can't. And even when you can, it's not this, I mean, like these people go from knowing every single minute detail about yeah. you. Was that ever stressful for you? Like that all these people know so much about you and like, you don't know where they are. Like that lack of control could feel a little crazy. They, they didn't sign an NDA. You know, it's like, did that ever <laughs> freak you out? It, it, it was a little stressful for me when, um, and I was, I was at InStyle. Mm-hmm. I took my job at InStyle when I was, while I was in treatment. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did. So yeah. you could get a job while you were in treatment. So they didn't like ban you in the middle. Okay. No, in the middle. I had to have reached a certain point, Um, but I got this job and they allowed me to take it. Well, together we decided Mm -hmm. that I was well enough to take it. And I had an office and a girl knocked on my door one day and was like, I just want to introduce myself. My name is so-and-so and and I'm really good friends with blank, who was a girl in my group. (gasps) That would terrify me. And, you know, I wasn't not like people knew I was in treatment. I was very vocal about it and very out out about it. But the idea that this girl's friend from college was an intern. Yes. And wanted to just be like, Hey, I know her too. And that this was existing in real life and not a nightmare. Yes. Yeah. That felt a little strange for me, but it also felt like a huge opportunity, which is why I started the chain and why I felt like there was such a need because the fact that I thought that I was so open about the fact that I had an eating disorder and was in treatment and was leaving work early to go to treatment and all of the rest, but still felt so like shock and awe by someone confronting me about Mm -hmm. it. It felt disjointed. Mm -hmm. So, 
So can you, how much does something like tre- a treatment center cost for those that might not? No idea. Okay. My parents. Okay. Uh, so it, it can probably vary. It definitely varies. I'm sure insurance covers some yeah. of it. It's a fortune. It is not. Oh, it's not. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> but I mean, I definitely would not have been able to afford the treatment that I received based on my salary. Okay. I mean, there are so many flaws there. Like that's just insane. Yeah. So did you, when you went through the treatment and I want to ask you more about this, but did you go in thinking, okay, I'm going to go in and do this and never talk about it again? Or did you know, you always knew that there was something that there was no part of me that that felt like that was an option. So much of what I talked about in group was about my job. And when the girls would talk within the group, so like so much of it was related to like my job Mm -hmm. and I didn't really see a way to stay recovered and stay in the fashion industry if I didn't talk about yeah. it. Like that just was not an option. Either I was going to leave that industry or I was going to figure out how to make it part of my story. So I want to ask you about like how you then brought that into your life in a minute, but did you have someone else's story to relate to? Like, did you know someone else that had ever gone to treatment like in your, you know, that you'd known before? Like, was this all new to you? This was all totally new to me. <laughs> Um, I didn't have anyone that I could talk to, to me, like adults didn't go to treatment. It was something that you did in high school. Mm. Like I had a lot of friends in high school who went to treatment for drugs and, or, or eating disorders, but definitely like did not know anyone in their thirties that was going into treatment. I thought it was really weird and embarrassing. And that was amplified by the fact that I was the oldest in the group. So like that was proven that like I was old for this. Um, but the second I told people, everyone was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in a treatment Isn't center. Isn't that always you know, how it happens? You, like, you keep it a secret like, and then you let it go. And ev- yes, it's out. crazy. And you're like, whoa, like Fran from marketing. Yeah. You know, you're like, it's so exactly. crazy. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how I ended up sharing my stories. I, you know, there was a Netflix movie that Lily Collins did called To the Bone. Yes. And I remember watching it. And be and like saying to my husband, like, oh my God, like you have to come watch this with me because like this is like what group is. Like you can finally see. Oh, is it a good depiction? Yeah. I felt like it was a really good depiction. And I was like, I'm gonna write about this movie Mm -hmm. and intertwine telling my story Mm. by sharing the details of Lily Collins in this Mm -hmm. movie. And that was an article I wrote for InStyle when I was there. And after I wrote it, I got so many people reaching out to me via Instagram and email and everything. And one girl reached out to me and was like, I can tell by your anecdote that you went to balance. Oh, no way. My treatment center. Oh, that's awesome. Because we we had this thing called a crystal ceremony at the end where they like give you a crystal. I love that. Yes. And, you know, it was just a unique thing. And and that was Christina Grasso, who ended up being my co-founder with for the chain. Oh, that's wonderful. So, yeah. That's cool. That's a fun little anecdote. So what is the chain, just for people that don't know? So the chain is a peer support group. It's a registered 50013C. We really started as an event-based group where once a month we would host an event with a retail partner or a brand that was like-minded in spirit um, and have a panel on some kind of body conversation or eating disorder conversation. We've spoken with nutritionists. We've spoken with health experts. We've spoken with beauty editors. Mm -hmm. 
during COVID, it's been really challenging, but we are about to start up a Zoom series, um, which we're excited That's about. So cool. Yeah, and we just offer support. We have, um, during Thanksgiving, we have a 24-hour Discord channel where people can kind of just like text throughout the day about how terrible Thanksgiving can yes. be. We, we kind of pop up and pop up and out as frequently as we can. Christina and I both work a lot. So it's definitely a passion project. And it's been interesting during COVID. We've both sort of had our own ups and downs with recovery. So like, I think we are always very honest with each other and with our community when that's happening. And so it's been challenging. Can it be triggering for you? And like, and you can say like, I can't be the leader of the group today. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's important because recovery is not linear. I will always be in recovery. Mm-hmm. Like I will never be recovered. Right. And that's something that I think is fine. I just think it's something that you have to come to terms with and also be honest with when you're leading a peer group that like, I don't have all the answers. I'm just sharing with you that like, I get yeah. it. Yeah, you're just in progress. Yeah, and like, totally. Yeah. So what was it like to pause your life at 30? Terrifying. It was terrifying and... You had to quit your job? I didn't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, I had to leave my job. I was in a job at the time that was not the right job for Mm -hmm. me. So that made it easier to leave that Mm -hmm. job. But I'm somebody who completely identifies by myself, by work. Yeah. What I'm doing and that felt really scary. And it felt really scary to say that like I had to leave a job because I was sick. And like, I felt like, am I entitled to say that? Cause like, that's something that like people with cancer say, right. but can you say that if you're, it's like mental illness? Like I, I, I like still like with all of the knowledge I have of mental illness, like I still did not feel like I had a right to say that I was part of mm-hmm. that. That was really hard. Yeah. So like you, did you write a letter to quit? Did you just like ghost? Like, no, I told, I mean, I was, I basically what happened was I had a seizure in the office. Mm. Um, and that's when they took me and brought me into like observation. And then I never, I I called them and I didn't come back. So when you came back, you know, you come back a different person, probably changed in so many ways. What were some of the boundaries and new things you had to implement into your life? I could not miss therapy, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, if a meeting ran late or anything like that, like I like was not, that was not something. If I was sick, I had to go to therapy. If I was mad, I had to go to Mm -hmm. therapy. Like I could not do that. I had to calendar in my lunch. So I had to have an hour every single day on my calendar that was dedicated to not being at my desk or eating at my desk. Mm -hmm. I, I had a very strict meal plan that I had to stick to for at least the first year post post ending treatment. I still pretty much stick to it just because it's just easier for me to have that as like a, a template. And those were some of the things that I had to do. Um, I was very, very lucky to have a friend that I worked with who I was able to confide very, like in a very, very deep way mm-hmm. on all of this, who really helped keep me in check. That's nice. And that was very helpful. And I also have a bunch of friends who I had met in treatment mm-hmm. or 
through the chain who I was able to text when crazy shit happened or when someone said something insane, like I'm too busy to have lunch mm. or, you know, I felt that model God or, or something like that. Like it, in those times where like, I felt really triggered or felt really angry or didn't feel like doing right. it. I had so many people that I could go talk to. So for me, the boundaries were really like, these are the X amount of times I need to set aside for yeah. myself. Like whether it's an hour for lunch or an hour for therapy, like there are, there's nothing in the world, including my sister asking me to help with childcare. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing in the world that can keep me from doing this thing um, and really sticking to were that. Were you dating at the time? Like when you were out or were you, were you single or were you in a relationship when you were? I was with Steve. Oh, you were. I was okay. with my husband. My husband was with me throughout my entire journey. That's how, you know, you got to keep her also. It's like your relationship oh, yeah. throughout that. That's, I love that. I mean, I think that that's yeah. a real love that you have there, you know? It's yeah. like, so what ultimately inspired you to start the chain? I think the fact that when I told people my story, when I wrote that story for InStyle, so many people from like assistants to VPs at LVMH to graphic designers to college kids were emailing me being like, oh my God, I have an eating disorder too. Mm. I didn't know that. Like maybe during fashion week, we could grab a snack. Wow. Like the idea that this cross that like people that I like women that I had been working with for a decade mm -hmm. that we shared something in common that could have helped one another, but we didn't talk about mm -hmm. it just was so crazy to I me. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I was like, this is fucking awesome. Like we all have eating disorders. Yeah. Like let's talk yes. about it. Yes. That's <laughs> what know? I'm like, saying. Like, I was such a group junkie by yeah. that point that like, You're like more group that, therapy. Yes. Yeah. That I was like, we are in cars all the time going to fashion shows or going to market appointments. Like why are we in these cars talking about how much weight people lost? Like let's have our afternoon snack in the car and like talk about how we're feeling. Yes. And like, let's just like, be real humans because this is a really big issue. And there are girls who are really sick. Mm -hmm. And if, if I could be a positive force for even one person, like I would love that because, you know, yes. I, didn't, I didn't have that. So. Right. And it helps you and the other person, you know, it's oh, so healing. It Keep you accountable. Yes. What is something that like most people get wrong or like make incorrect assumptions about eating disorders and recovery other than that it's not linear? You know, I think that the most common misconception is that eating disorders look a certain way. Mm. I think people think unless my friend looks like she's dying, I don't want to say anything. Mm -hmm. um, or unless I see her throwing up in the bathroom, I don't want to say anything. Mm. I think especially if you grew up watching Lifetime original movies oh, or yes. anything like that, yeah. you have a very... Um, specific image of what anorexia looks like. And that's simply not what it, I mean, it certainly is that for some people, mm -hmm. but at least in my experience being in treatment, I didn't see anybody who looked like they were dying. Those women were in the hospital. Right. They weren't in intensive outpatient. Right. And I think that the idea that you have to look a certain way to need help is really prevalent and very dangerous. Yes, absolutely. So what's your advice to someone that's, you know, that's listening to this and going through it in the throes of it. I would say that, um, the most helpful thing that I heard, the thing that changed my mind and really helped me accept that I had a problem was 
if the majority of your brain space is being spent thinking about food or thinking about weight, you need to change mm-hmm. that majority. Yes. You want the majority of your brain space being spent on your friends or your career or people you love or, you know, something fun and, and not food and not your weight. So if you find yourself in a position where you draw a circle, you know, a pie chart, if you will, and the majority of that pie chart is food obsession, Mm -hmm. you need to get help. And that help doesn't have to be going to a treatment center and, you know, moving into like some safe house. It, It can be as simple as talking to a therapist or talking to a friend, but that's what an eating disorder is. If the majority of your brain space is spent thinking about food obsession, then you need help. It really can be as simple as that. Yeah. And something that I worry about, you know, with, it can be pretty mean girl-ish, you know, back and forth. If like, you're like, I'm going to talk to all my other friends about how we think that that girl's suffering, you know? So what would your advice to be to people that love someone who they think is going through it, you know, but handling it in the proper way? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a tough question and I get it all the time. And I don't know if there's, there's a right answer, especially because, I mean, the, the first thing is like, it depends on how old they are, right? Like if you're listening to this and you're in high school and you're worried about your friend, tell your parents, yes. like, that's, yes. like, tell your parents, do not play hero. Do not handle mm-hmm. it yourself. Do not try to have a fake intervention with a group of 15 year olds. Like, I, I understand that you want to do that, but it, just tell your parents and have please. your mom call their mom. End of story. Yes, please. But when you're an adult, it's a little harder because when you go to someone who's a fully formed adult and criticize them for how they're living their life and what they're putting into their bodies, especially today in a day where phrases like eating clean are celebrated mm, and intermittent fasting and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, like that, like it, it's really, really complicated. Yeah. And I think that the simplest thing to do is to simply say, it seems like you're spending a lot of time focused on food and weight. And it's, it makes me worried. And I just want you to know that I'm here if you want to talk about it and leaving it at that, because the difficult thing about having a friend in adulthood who's dealing with an eating disorder is until they decide they want to help themselves, there's nothing you can do. Right. And which is true for addiction and all of that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What is something that your eating disorder taught you about yourself? How have you changed? It taught me that I have so much more space in my brain to think about other things. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's how I've changed. I've been able to focus on so many more things. Like the world opens up. So is it like treatment and then done? Or is it just like constant work and you constantly are making more room in your brain? Constant work, constant work. Okay, well, I really appreciate you like sharing this story. Like it's really going to help so many people. And um, we will take a quick break. Now we're going to shift gears into our last few questions. What is like a topic or concept concept that you think more women, either like in your industry or just in general, should stop lying about or should start talking about more openly? Work-life balance. Yes. Can you elaborate on that? It's just like this idea that like, you know, you should schedule time for your, it's like, I can't tell you how many times people tell me to relax or take time for myself and then immediately send me an email being like, by the way, can you get this to me in 10 minutes? Yes. I just want to, I just want to have an honest conversation about work-life balance. And that there is no balance. And and that there is none. And that some days are better than others. And some days will be more work and some days it'll be more Mm -hmm. life. And some days you'll have a spa day, you know, like figuring out what that balance is 
that's a personal thing, yeah. but like this concept, like it drives me crazy. I don't remember who said it, but you can, you can have it all. You just can't have it all. Exactly. Once. I love that. Um, and I think that that's really important. I love that. That's beautiful. What's a way in which you're working on yourself these days? Um, I take antidepressants. I have always taken antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, Go I, us. I guess <laughs> love, love being professionally and properly Balanced. medicated. Yes. <laughs> um, I would say something that I am trying to work on is I have never really figured out a way to move my body. Mm. Like, and I, I don't say exercise just because like the idea of me going to a gym just doesn't feel super safe, but like, I don't, I, I need to find a way to move my body, whether it's like going for a walk or I, I don't know what that is, but it's a goal that I have for this year. Yeah. Was it something that you were doing in treatment? Do they make you move your body in certain ways? Or? You're not a no, no you're, okay. it's like there's a there was yeah I just I, I haven't been able to crack that code mm-hmm. for myself and I want to find a healthy way even just 10 minutes a day like I don't like it doesn't need to be anything yeah. serious or like committed yeah. like I just I just want to feel like not so sitting sedentary. down yeah just like sedentary yes yes, yes. yes. Yeah, no I feel the same way all the time but I feel like there's a layer of complexity when you know it's it totally. can be laced with you know all of those things yeah. What is something that people that follow you on Instagram would be surprised to know? I kind of leave it yeah. all. Yeah. I mean, like, I kind of leave it all out there. And that's I think why you're I, loved. I mean, recently I, I, I posted something saying that I wasn't going to post for a while. I think people were pretty surprised about that because I do talk a lot about mental health issues. But with that said, I reached a point recently where I was struggling so much that I actually, it wasn't helpful yeah. for me at the time yeah. anymore. So I think that like, the fact that I do have limits maybe mm-hmm. surprises yes, people. Yes, yes. That you're still like a work in progress, you know, that it's still. Totally, yeah. totally, totally. Okay, I love that. Well, okay, well, yeah. let's talk about uh, where people can find you, what's coming up, where can people access the chain? Yes, people can find me at Ruthie Freeds on Instagram or at at Large Agency, which is my company, or at The Chain, which is uh, my eating disorder support group that I run with Christina Grasso. Okay, perfect. And that's it. You're done. We are done. We made it to the finish line. Thank you so much for doing that with me. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh my God, of course. Thank you. It's so refreshing to me when people talk about their struggles like as openly as Ruthie does, because it's so true that you think it's so much more daunting and so much scarier than it actually is, like the longer that you keep things a secret. And she talks about it so casually in a way that kind of lets us all know that like your struggles and your past doesn't have to define you. They can just be a story that you tell on a podcast, you know? I swear, guys, I'm not trying to be this thirsty bitch, but please call me and leave me a voicemail or a text message. The number is 415-849-0299, and we can just talk, and it'll be fun. The number is also in the link in my bio on Instagram, where you can find me at Jade Iovine if you want to chat there. And again, if you or anyone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, please visit the-chain.us where they have additional resources and we'll also write that address in the show notes so you can find it there. Thank you guys so much for listening. Rate and subscribe as always and I'll see you guys next time.